Uh, we have gone through 100 days of prayer, and I think for most of our triplets, uh, not only has it been a great experience of praying together, but we've kind of brought all those 100 days to an end. Now, some of the, the triplet groups, and sometimes they got multiplied to even larger groups, uh, have decided to continue to meet. And uh, our three guys and our triplet, we've decided to do that. And we'll be meet, meeting on 6 o'clock on Wednesday evenings. And we're going to combine with that time of prayer a little Bible study that will go along with that. So I'm hoping that, that uh, many of the other prayer triplets will continue to meet because I think we, we began to sense some things that God was doing and wanted to do and wanted to say to us uh, as we had a, a 200 and some people praying uh, and uh, going through a guided prayer agenda. And I think God has spoken to us. Tonight at 5 o'clock we have some of a kind of a debriefing time when we'll look at some of the comments that you made uh, through your prayer and dialogue time is what you felt God was talking to us about for the life of our church. Now, uh, as we've gone through that prayer experience together, uh, we've gone through the Easter season. And then uh, beginning Easter night, we kind of tied in with the AD series that's showing on NBC. And uh, it just continues to remind me about uh, what that early church was experiencing as it was birthed and how much they depended upon uh, the power of prayer. Now, if you're watching the AD series, you, you might find yourself doing some of the things that I do, two things in particular. Number one is I watch each segment, um, and, and I, I'm checking it for the biblical accuracy. Are, are they, do they tell this story right, you know? Because hardly ever is there a best-selling book that a movie comes out about that they don't change the book some kind of way. I want to make sure they don't change the Bible story and alter the story of the book. And that pretty much so, I think, they've been true uh, to the story there in the Bible. Uh, the other thing that I do is that I just find myself marveling at how bold and determined, how decisive, how courageous these early believers were. And I think the other thing that this show has done is, is that they've woven together not only the biblical account, but probably all the other things that we didn't know about that were going on underneath between like Pilate and Caiaphas and all the other things that were taking place, all to discredit the resurrection of Christ and the birth of this church and the movement of the Holy Spirit. And yet we see what happened in the book of Acts, that they grew by multitudes of people making that decision, even in a hostile uh, environment. Now, that's what our story today in the Scriptures will be about when we get to that in Acts 4. But the, the origin of this incident really begins in Acts 3. Peter and John going up to the temple to pray at that hour, and they are encountered by a lame beggar, and he asked for something. They didn't have money to give to him. They didn't have anything except the power of Jesus Christ. And so they gave him the power of Jesus Christ, and they said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk, and he did. And everybody who knew that man knew that for all of his life he had been a cripple and he had laid there with no means of being able to carry himself. And, and that that was a great testimony to the power of God. Well, word began to spread. And, and Peter took that as an opportune time to preach a powerful gospel message and people responded. And the word spread in another way. And that is that the religious leaders and, and uh, uh, the Roman government began to get wind of what was going on. So they had Peter and John arrested, thrown into jail. And then Peter gets his chance to make an impassioned defense before uh, the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish, basically uh, comparable to the Jewish Supreme Court. And his boldness startled them because I don't think they expected it. And he actually quoted Acts 4.12, Mr. Dyson. 
that there is salvation in no other name given unto heaven among men by which you might be saved except the name of Jesus. And boy, that really, uh, that really rattled the, the, these guys because they kept calling him the Nazarene. And they thought they'd put him to death and got, a, got rid of him, but there was no putting him away. So what did they do? Well, after conferring with one another, they decided that a general miracle had taken place, and they couldn't deny that. They couldn't stop that. So they ordered Peter and John not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So the authorities told them, after some threats, to go. And immediately they returned to the other disciples, and then they gave them a full report. Now, before we look at that portion of the Scripture, I just want us to kind of think about this. See if we can, see if we can even begin to enter into that Scripture setting and that story and have some sense of identification about what was going on. So let me put it to you this way. What would you do if the Supreme Court of our land ordered that you could not speak about Jesus Christ? What would be your response? What would you do? What if you were threatened about losing your job if you dared to share Jesus Christ with a co-worker? What would you do if you were told that you could not bring your Bible to work or to school What would you do if you were ordered that you could not in any way, by any form of jewelry or any other means, wear a cross that would be visibly seen? Now, what would you do if your teacher or professor, most colleges have already gone into the exam stage, some have already graduated, but what would you do if you're a student and your teacher, professor, forbids you to mention Jesus in a term paper about the most influential person that you can think of. Take that a little bit deeper. What if you happen to live in one of the countries as a believer where ISIS has begun persecuting and beheading believers who refuse to denounce Jesus Christ? Well, we know that that's happening more and more today. You're either living in a cave or you're not watching anything with news to know that that's readily taking place. In fact, It's taking place more regularly today, the shedding of blood of believers than ever before. We thought that we'd seen the worst of it in the last century because the 1900s saw more people martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ than in all time since the beginning of the church and up to 1900. Now that's absolutely mind-blowing, isn't it? But it's getting worse today. According to a report from Open Doors, which is an organization that studies this persecution of believers, uh, here are the top ten countries in which believers, Christians, are persecuted. Look at that. North Korea, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, Iran, Pakistan. Most all these names, number ten is Nigeria. Most all those names were familiar to me until I got to number nine. I said, I've never heard of that country. Any of y'all know where that country is? Anybody know how to pronounce it? I think it's Erythia, Erythria, Eritrea. We looked it up, and it's in Africa. It's on borders of the Red Sea, right above Ethiopia. And these are the top ten, top ten countries where believers are persecuted. 
I know according to the Open Door Survey, the President David Curry said that 2014, can you believe this? 2014, the year just passed, has seen the highest level of global persecution of Christians in this modern area, and things are getting worse. And by all research that they have done, they believe that 100 million Christians worldwide are currently suffering persecution. Let me leave you with this image. You've probably seen it. Got the picture? Now you've probably seen that. There are believers being beheaded, moments before they're beheaded, simply because they dared to believe in Jesus Christ. So when you understand that that's taking place in our world today, then you can understand what was taking place when this early church was experiencing the opposition because they dared to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Across the centuries, the price of winning souls to the Lord Jesus Christ has always been paid in blood. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I think it's still true today. So, when Peter and John had received this news from the Sanhedrin that they were not to preach or teach about the name of Jesus anymore under threat of their life, what did they do? Look at our text, Acts um, chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, now notice that phrase, when they heard this, we'll come back and see the significance of that later. But when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. What did they do? They prayed when that report came to them. And they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, this is their prayer, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That was their prayer. And what happened? After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God boldly. I would suggest to you that that most definitely is a church of prayer. And so that's the title of our message for today, and our emphasis as we look at the Scripture. Uh, a church of prayer. What, what, was it, what did it mean for them, and what does it mean for us? Immediately they went, Peter and John, to their fellow believers, to their church, and the church went into prayer. And it was a powerful prayer. John Piper is quoted as saying, If you do not know that life is war, you will not know what prayer is for. I think sometimes we fail to remember that we are at war. We're at war with the culture around us. We're at war with those principalities of the air, the evil ones. And that's why we always need to be a people of prayer. So I want to emphasize four things out of this prayer that we see. 
that we need to understand would be contributing factors to, uh, to our becoming a church of prayer. Because I'm hoping that these hundred days of prayer have generated something in our soul, stirred within the depth of our being, that we want to continue in lifting up this church and our ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we see from the, the pattern of this prayer? of this church being a church of prayer. First of all, you got to notice the motivation with which they prayed. I told you to look at that phrase in verse 24 when they heard this. That simply refers to that incident of the threat against the church because they were facing one of their first crises as a church. So their motivation in prayer was a serious threat to the life and ministry of the church. And it signifies, I think, a sense of desperation on their point. That was the motivating factor. They were desperate. Honestly, I think they were scared. They didn't know what was going to happen. They never faced anything like that before. They'd never been involved in spiritual warfare before, and that was what was going on. It was the authority of God versus the authority of man, and they were caught in the middle of that skirmish. Because life is a war if you're a believer. They were desperate. Now, what about us today? Well, I would suggest that this church and most every other church in America really is not a church of prayer as it should be because we are desperate. We don't have a feeling of despair. We're really not destitute. We're not burdened. We're not broken. We're not filled with concern. First Amendment gives us the protection of being able to gather together and worship freely and to share the gospel freely. And what's been the end result? Well, we've gotten comfortable. Come to church when it's convenient, hear some nice music, maybe stay awake through the message, go out to eat on Sunday, and then you go about the rest of your week like nothing else has taken place. We've become complacent. Not just us, but I think the vast majority of churches in this country. And we have an enemy far more dangerous than the government, and that's our own complacency. If you really want to put it down to the level where the first church was, it is the lack of threats and the lack of a threatening menace, because that's far more dangerous. Well, think about it in your own life, okay? When things are going okay in your life, how's your prayer life? Well, yeah, it's okay, right? When things are going fine, your prayer life is what? It's still okay. But when a crisis comes and something of desperate proportion hits your life, what's your prayer life like? I would think that it becomes a little bit more intense and passionate and seeking after the heart of God, doesn't it? Well, that's the challenge for us today, I think, is to become a people desperate in prayer. We have to be desperate to know God on a deeper level, desperate to do God's will, desperate for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, and desperate for God to do something great and holy through the life of this church and through every one of us. And I would suggest to you that when we become desperate, we will become a church of prayer. Now, you'll notice the second thing. Not only were they desperate as they prayed, But notice the unity with which they prayed. Verse 24 says, they raised their voices together. Other translations say, with one accord. You see, that's the power of prayer. That's the power of prayer. They were united. They they had 
one specific incident that was before them, and that was the focus of their prayer. And we need to see that they were united on that, and they prayed in that one accord. It had one purpose as they prayed, that church did. Our need is not just to get a lot of people praying here in the life of our church, but to see if we can't get together and pray with unity. Because most of the times when we deal with an issue, we're all over the map with opinions and ideas and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be interesting to see what your reactions are this afternoon, those of you who show up for the dialogue about the dialogue and prayer and comments made about the life of our church. In some way, <coughs> those comments, I've read them, in some way, those comments are kind of all over the board. And so it would be interesting to see as we look at them together. But see, we need to learn to pray with unity. And what is that unity? Well, Matthew 18, 19 says, I also tell you this, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. You see, that's why for these hundred days of prayer, we gave to each triplet a guided prayer agenda. So that for 10 sessions, everybody was praying for the same 10 things in the life of our church. We wanted us to be united in that prayer. It would be interesting to see as we uh, assimilate today and disseminate all that, uh, that debrief from what we, uh, what we have said about that. So this church not only prayed in desperation, but they prayed in unity. Now, the third thing we see about a church that really prays is we have to notice the person to whom they prayed. And of course, they prayed to God. That's very obvious. But the issue is deeper than that. You've got to notice their vision for God. What was their vision of God? So it was in this time of crisis that they reflected upon the sovereignty of God. In fact, we see that emphasized greatly in verse 24. Uh, the NIV calls him sovereign Lord is what they said. And that is a word for Lord, not the normal word for Lord, which is kurios, but it is a word in the New Testament Greek used only five times. And basically, it describes an iron hand ruler or a despot. And that's what that sovereignty means about God, that God is sovereign. He stands alone. He does what he decides to do. And so they prayed to this sovereign God who had all authority and all power. Now, what did they pray? It was a specific prayer. I think that's something that we need to be reminded of. We need to pray a specific prayer. It always gets me when people are praying, and we're praying in a group, and somebody mentions a special concern, and the prayer is genuine and it's heartfelt. I know where it comes from, but people say, Lord, just be with them. Well, you know what the Bible says? Psalm 139 tells us that no matter where we are, the Lord is with us, right? So we need to go a little bit deeper in our prayer rather than just saying, Lord, be with them. Well, he's already there, right? So go a little bit deeper and be specific in when you're praying. Lord, as your presence is there with them and they're going through this crisis, give them peace, give them strength, give them comfort, give them hope. You know, get a little bit more specific. The early church knew that. They prayed for three things. Number one, they prayed that God would consider the threats of the Jewish leaders. That is, they wanted God to make sure that he saw what was happening to them, that, they, that he knew their situation. Okay? 
Number two, they prayed that God would give them boldness to preach the gospel in the face of persecution. And number three, don't miss this, they asked that God would do more miracles, healing and other things. Why? Because that's what attracted the crowds. And when they had a crowd, they didn't take up an offering, they preached. And preached Jesus, and people were saved. I think their prayer there is so much different than what I prayer. My prayer would have been. Put yourself honestly in that situation. What would you have prayed and asked God to do? Most of us, if you're honest, would say, we would have prayed, Lord, deliver me from this. Strike the Sanhedrin dead. Right? Bring down a miracle. Kill all those who oppose your gospel. But they didn't pray for that. They said, Lord, Lord, give us boldness to preach the gospel in our circumstance. They didn't ask for an easy life. They asked for boldness to deal with what was going on. Notice why they prayed. They had an absolute confidence in God. And their prayer also demonstrates that spiritual stubbornness because they prayed for more boldness, not less persecution. In essence, they asked God for more of what got them into trouble in the first place. And the result was that people came by the thousands to know Christ as Savior. I think in our prayer life, we have to have a vision of God that allows us to see him in control in both power and purpose. Now, very quickly, here's the fourth thing that I think we have to notice, and that is the results for which they prayed. They were given confidence in verse 29, and they were given God's power in verse 30. And I think as we pray, when we pray, what is that spirit of unity with which we need to pray? You know, we can always pray for a lot of things. Well, we need to pray about the finances of the life of our church. We need to pray about our missions emphasis. We need to pray that God will bring more people. We need to pray and see more decisions made for Christ. And all of that is true. Nothing wrong with that. But I think underneath all of that should be this one desire in our prayer. And that is that God would take us and use us for his glory so that our lives would glorify him. And in essence, isn't that what the church in Acts 4 prayed for? Lord God, use us to bless you and to glorify your name. And don't we, hopefully, really want God to take our church to new levels of ministry and influence for the glory of God? I certainly hope so. Because we have worlds of opportunity right around us to reach people. Now what was the result? Look at verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God boldly. God heard and answered their prayers like Pentecost all over again that the Spirit came down on them. Shook the place and they were filled with the Spirit. And they began to proclaim the gospel with boldness because that's what they asked for, wasn't it? They asked for that boldness. You know, I think sometimes in our complacency, we deny the power of prayer. And when we go back and we look at the birth of the church and the culture in which it was established, I think we we have to understand 
that there was nothing easy or complacent about a faith in Christ back then. You believed in Christ as a threat of being beheaded, just like countries and other places around the world are going through real life threats now. And more and more people are being martyred every day, every week we can read about it. And so my suggestion to us, a mandate to us, my, my imploring to us as a church as we study the scriptures and particularly look at this incident is that the significance of this story must not pass us by. And that is that the church in Acts prayed in prayer desperately in face of real dangerous threats against the preaching of God's word about Jesus. They faced extraordinary obstacles. And if you'd really sit down and get past your sense of complacency and the routine of your life day by day, you would see that John Piper said that, that prayer, life is war and therefore we need to have prayer in our life. Because we're facing some tremendous challenges in our culture today. But there are also at the same time wonderful opportunities for us to minister to people. See, there's a greater mobility on the part of people. Even in the life of our church. You know, members, you, you know, it used to be two or three times a week was measured as, of attendance was a, was a pretty regular attendance. Now it's like once a month. But then there's a sheer growth of number of people. The volume of people around us like never before. There's that successful lifestyle that people feel like they have no need of God. And we know in our culture out here in Northeast Columbia, there is a tremendous diversity in this population. But I look back at that early church. Boy, I don't think you could get any more diverse than they were. When you look at Acts 2 and Acts 5. And then we have to look at a culture which has become numb to the spiritual truths of the kingdom of God. And sometimes that's even, well, greatly, it's permeated even into the life of the church. Where people who say they are part of the kingdom of God has embraced more of the values of the culture around us than the values of the kingdom of God. So I would suggest to us we need to become a church of prayer. And that means that we pray with a unity of purpose, a vision of God. We learn to pray desperately and expectantly. And we claim God's power. Because that's what a church of prayer does. Father, we, we marvel at the story, uh, the history of the birth of your church. And against overwhelming odds, how they remained determined in their faith. And with boldness they shared uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And people came from many walks of life to experience that power. I pray, Father, for our church that we would be a people who are driven desperately to prayer. And that we would pray trusting in your goodness, your power, and your purpose. And asking, Lord, that you would use us in our circumstances, whatever they might be, to glorify your name. And to that end, I pray, asking for your spirit to move among us and to convict us. Through the powerful name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.